You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. Welcome to The Last Aid Station. This is Mark, and thank you very much for joining us as we hit our mid-season stride with some of the biggest racing of the season yet to come. Today's guest is the race director of one of those biggest races of the season, a race that many from around North America and, as you'll hear, from around the world target as a go-to event. My guest today is none other than Mike McCormick of the Greenspeed Project, or better known as the Big Cheese and Race Director of the Breck Epic, one of the top mountain bike stage races in the world. With the ninth edition of the Breck Epic right on the horizon, Mike set aside a little time to discuss the race, its evolution, and this year's event, which promises to showcase some of the best racers in North America and from around the world, challenging each other head-to-head, with the Breck Epic this year inviting many of those athletes to his event to make it a very, very deep, deep quality field, a virtual who's who of off-road racing, including the best of the best in everything from cyclocross and XC and marathon racing to stage racing. He has been called outspoken, and opinionated, but you know what? He speaks his mind, and you know where he stands, and his voice has made a significant difference in off-road racing. He is an innovator, coming up with great ideas that have been copied, while admitting to using great ideas of others that make his events better still. I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Mike McCormick of the Breck Welcome to the last aid station. Uh, this is Mark again with another podcast, bringing to you all the peoples uh, that move and shake and make our great sport uh, what it is. I have with me this time around this podcast, the famous Mike McCormick, race director and promoter of the Breck Epic. Now in its ninth year, uh, the race that is held yearly in and around Breckenridge, Colorado, Eagle County, Colorado, on um, the Epic now less than two weeks out, 10 days out. I thought we would have Mike on to talk about the evolution of the race, the changes for this year. So that those of you that are headed out there to race or headed up there, depending on where you're at. And there are a few. Um, there's quite a bit of changing this year. A couple big steps up, lay some rumors to rest, perhaps talk about the elite side of racing this year, which like I mentioned, uh, did take a big step up in the, at least the quantity of talent registered and talk about where Mike thinks this race is headed in coming years. So welcome to Last Aid Station Podcast, Mike. Thanks for having me on. So what we asked this question, this first question I'm going to ask you to the racers, and it's a bit different, albeit from your position as a promoter of a big event, probably has maybe a similar pathway um, on the opposite side of the start line. Um, it takes a lot of guts and fortitude to put on a race, any race let alone one that has grown like you you guys have into the size of the event that you have. And you're always having to build on that reputation, and it's a thin line um, with the issues that can occur and the finest details that some racers may like, may not like. But the path to maintaining a large national 
perhaps even international event is um, built on the things that went not so well in previous years. So what has been your path to making the race what it is now and mistakes perhaps you've made? And how did you get, did you ever envision it to be this race? Um, you know, the list of mistakes is, is a long one. <laughs> um, fortunately, none of them have been so egregious that, that we've really soured people on our brand or our event or, or, or if we have, um, there's been a, a, a long enough line of people that they've sort of disappeared into the background. You know, when, when we talk about how the race came to be what it is, I, I think, you know, it was just a glimmer in, in our eye 10 years ago. Um, Mike Ferentino, who weirdly uh, works for us now on the PR side, wrote an article about the Trans Rockies uh, 12, 13 years ago, and he was riding in a new pair of CDs um, and hiking up this awful power line climb. Um, and I don't know whether he actually did or not, but he, but he claimed that he tore both of his Achilles tendons. <laughs> and uh, you know, my, my takeaway wasn't poor Mike or um, God, that sounds amazing. Um, but it's, it sort of stayed with me. And when I looked around the terrain available in, in Breckenridge in and around uh, Summit County, it seemed that all these great stage races had a great amount of, of transition and, and travel. And we sort of had this trail network that had the width and breadth that was really incredibly magnificent. And I thought that we could do it all from one place. Yeah. And so we put together these six rides that were – kind of the, the rides you knocked out every summer. Like they were always on your summer long bucket list and they turned into what the Epic is today. Uh, we have gone through a lot of ups and downs to, to get where we are. I mean, the, the second I wrote uh, our first enormous check for merchandise, uh, the global economy crashed. Um, like, not really to the second, but to the day. Um, and so we sort of got behind and, and we're robbing Peter to pay Paul for the first couple of years. And that's always been a balancing act as, as the race grows, you need to manage those budgets and forecast merchandise and meal plans and, and camping, lodging accommodations. Um, so we make educated guesses. We do the best we can. There's other great stage races. There's other great events in the world. And, and we're really not above, um, you know, quote unquote, borrowing a good idea from someone else. And I think, you know, that's the case with all of us, uh, whether it's, it's Dean or, or Dre or, you know, the, the, um, Aaron, um, when you see someone else doing something well, you want that for your race there. Right. So we've contributed some and, and we've taken a few great ideas out of the pot. Um, and we're lucky that our, our peer group is pretty amazing. Yeah. And you guys definitely, I mean, they're, they're, when you, when you talk about stage racing, um, in especially off-road stage racing in North America, I mean, you guys are always in the same sentence with, you know, maybe one or two other events. Um, and you guys seem to continually up the bar also. The whole idea of one specific place, you know, locale that all the races go from without repeating the same trails is Amazing. I mean, it's, it makes it easier on the racers. It makes it easier on, um, your, your day to day Joe's and not the guys that have the big budgets to be able to do that and have support and things like that. And so it makes it much easier for someone to actually compete without having the professional support that would come with being a professional racer. Um, and 
Yeah. Logistically, we're less challenging than, than something like the BC bike race. Um, we're less rustic, um, than the Transylvania. Um, each of those races has their own personality. I don't, I don't consider us better or worse. We're just different. Right. Exactly. We have have our own voice and execution and, and those guys do too. And I think the market has proven that if you're decent to people and you put a good product out there, um, that we can all be pretty healthy. You've talked about your race growing every year, kind of mentioned it there a little bit. This year, you've taken a huge step up in soliciting or encouraging, however you want to put it, the best of the best in off-road talent, especially the racers who race here in the States, um, be that foreign or domestic riders, um, be that World Cup or Enduro or Marathon guys or even the stage race specialists. This year seems to have a huge amount of quantity. You've always had the quality but this field is super deep. What pointed in you, you in that direction to growing the race like that? You know, making sure that we have the best of the best this year. It's something, it's something that appears to be very organized from your perspective. Uh, pettiness, mostly. <laughs> um, being spurned by, by uh, everyone, you know, lavishing money and praise on, on, uh, the USA Pro Cycle Challenge, <laughs> and uh, ignoring the fact that we were accomplishing everything they set out to do, you know, driving the local economy, selling the brand, um, running an extremely ethical, low-impact event. Um, and I kinda, it sounds funny, um, but I mean, that's a motivator. I, I, I am a cycling fan. You know, I was in, when Lance won his first tour uh, with everyone else, man, I sat on my couch with tears rolling down my eyes. It was amazing. And the drama that goes on in a big event, you know, a grand tour is unbelievable. It's difficult to recreate. In Colorado, uh, you know, we have the USA Pro Cycling Challenge and now we have the Colorado Classic. And as a state and as, you know, various, um, marketing agencies, you know, uh, um, tourism agencies, Denver, we're pretty enamored with those. Um, and I like that. It's really hard to disagree with it. I'm, I'm for more racing. Um, yet at the same time, you know, I've seen us struggle to make ends meet. Um, when we were accomplishing a lot of the big overarching goals that the bigger races were trying to do. Um, I know that in Colorado on the roadside, the terrain isn't severe enough to create those violent selections, uh, that we see in the Giro or the Vuelta or the Tour. Um, but on the mountain bike side, man, it is a best in class product. So we're driven by a need to prove a point. You know, when someone tells you you can't do something or it's not good enough, I mean, I'm Scott's Irish. My, my immediate reaction is, so you say, yeah. uh, but I thought that we could create bigger narratives, um, that we could create. You know, the, the few times that I've been able to sit down and write a really good race report about what really happened at the pointy end of the race, they've been amazing. I mean, I, I wrote a race report several years ago about a, a G3 event um, that Yeti produced at Sol Vista, and Chris Kavarik came, and some of the local riders were giving it to him, and they were giving it straight back to him, and, and it really taught me that there's so much that goes on, and there's really a market and an audience for that. So when we talk about the talent level for this year, um, 
Yeah, I joke about pettiness. There's some really amazing people uh, at the Colorado Tourism Office, and and the same thing in, in Breckenridge and every other host community um, that the big road races have visited. But I, it's not so much a, a bone to pick as much as I think I think we can do that better. And so I'm putting my money, and it really is my money, uh, where my mouth is, and getting Jeff Kabush here to duke it out with. Todd Wells and Howard Grotz and Jeremiah Bishop. That's we're going to get to see those guys kick each other in the nads. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> we're going to get to see those guys fight it out for a week, and that's kind of a rare treat. Yeah. And our our job then is to communicate that to the audience all over the world. Um, we're a little bit insulated from the names in Europe. Like Alvin Licata means less in the United States than he does in Germany or Switzerland. Um, but we have Graz and Finsterwald and Wells and Kabush. Um, our audience is uh, kind of segmented into thirds. You know, a third of our racers come from Colorado. Um, another third come from about 40 different states and the remaining third cross an international border or, or an ocean to get here. So the audience is out there for great racing and great stories. Yeah. And it has, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, the, you're talking about the stories. That's something I've always said here on this podcast. I mean, this podcast is now, you know, approaching 100 episodes and it's all because of those stories. I mean, it's simply, I don't have to come up with stories They They make them, they make themselves up, uh, you know, all the races that happen at the front. I mean, this is like one of the most exciting sports out there. And, you know, not many people are reporting on it. And so that's why this, this podcast even exists. And you're right. I mean, having you guys having the, the wherewithal to bring all those people to your race and now in the ninth year have built it up that now you've, you've gotten everything really solidified. And now you've got the terrain and the courses ready to really have these huge epic battles that there's no doubt they're going to happen. They're going to happen. I mean, it's not going to, it's not going to be like somebody's going to come in here and, and lay it down and, and walk away with it. I mean, there's, it's, there's so much thought that has gone into your race and I commend you guys for that. But finally this year, you guys actually have all the talent showing up to show, to show us who is best in a week long stage race. It's not, it's not just, well, thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's taken us a while to get here and to be able to sort of forfeit those entries. We, we could have easily filled them with people who were paying. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really important to note that we rarely have a women's field with this much talent. I mean, Katarina Nash and Katie Compton and Aaron Huck and, you know, a half dozen other Meredith Miller, just really, really fast women. And I'm, I'm forgetting half of them. Uh, but that's also cool. And, and the women's side is producing stories, you know, equal to, and in some cases surpassing the men's side. Mm-hmm. And they're getting far less exposure. And there's not gender equity there in terms of how much attention is paid to racing. And on, on the women's side of the field, there's some amazing personalities. Yes. And I guess that, that sort of closes the circle on why we're doing it. We would go to events like Sea Otter, you know, as, as our PR company and we would represent brands there and we would see a million people that we knew and we would see people like Todd Wells, who's pretty rad, you know, Katie Compton, exactly the same in a completely different way. Um, and they're sort of behind the velvet rope and that's not who they are as people. 
so, you know, circumstances and things have changed for both of them a little bit and, and what they both excel at, particularly along with, you know, a couple dozen of their, their peers is really being ambassadors to the sport and doing it in a granular, granular way by talking to people at, whether it's a junior racer or, you know, a guy from, from the middle of Kentucky who, who a race like this is his or her Everest. And so we wanted to put those people in the mix and make them approachable. They're, they're really, they're doing a great job promoting our sport. And so accessibility to them is one of the things that we can provide through the mechanism of the race. Yeah. I, I have to agree. I mean, I think it's, you guys are, you guys are, are putting on a great product, but also, you know, um, it's always been there because um, you've always had your elite racers there, you know, hanging out with, um, you know, the, the weekend warrior guys or the, the guys that this is, that this is the top of their season. This is what they've been gunning for all season and training for. And, but this year you're going to have that, huge battle occurring and still have the chance for those guys to hang out with them and talk to them. And, you know, there's, there's not that barrier in the top of the mountain bike echelon, so to speak, as there is on the roadside where, you know, you've got, you know, barriers and fences and that even though they are close, they're still not approachable um, as they are in the mountain bike community, which makes it way cool. Um, so let's, yeah. You've always based your race, um, and it's something that kind of got a you got a name for yourselves in doing um, the three three simple rules of, that cover everything that occurs at your race. Um, it's been copied. It's been mentioned innumerable times. It kind of emphasizes the attitude of your race and the culture you're trying to reinforce in this kind of backcountry racing while still having uh, a professional quality event. Um, one, don't be a dick, and that covers it all. That is truly one of your rules. One, don't be a dick. Subsection of that is never serving a USADA or WADA suspension because you are, um, and we'll talk about that in a second. Two, wear your helmet, and three, don't litter in the backcountry. That is seriously all the rules that you have. That first one covers a lot of ground. <laughs> Understood. Um, but let's talk about that uh, that doping rule, which you guys got – all kinds of props for, but not many people copied you initially. I think you were the first one or one of the first ones to do it where you, you banned all racers, whether you were currently on a ban or you weren't allowing anybody that had a doping history to come to your event. Cape Epic followed suit after that about a year or two years later. And then it seems like this year they backed off it a bit for those that had been previously enhanced and now racing in masters categories. Um, anyhow, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, did you, do you think it was just lip service from them? I'm not trying to bash the Epic. I'm just saying, or do you, or do you think there's other things that work there perhaps as they grow their event also under UCI auspices and stuff? And I think as, as, as you get older, that, that your chronological age hopefully is paired with, with an emotional maturity arc. <laughs> and one of those things, one of the, the sort of side effects of that is, is that less and less you have sort of a knee jerk reaction to judge what other people are doing. Yeah. Um, I still don't like the fact that, that Leadville doesn't have a decent return or transfer policy. I think that's a load of shit because they, so flipping rich with waiting lists. And so, you know what? I'm always going to call them out for that because I don't agree with it. However, when you look at something like the Cape Epic taking a position and then reversing it, or even in the case of, of Leadville, you know, I really want to be careful about, I'm going to 
you know, hold their feet to the fire for that. But in the same breath, I'm also going to say it's an amazing event. And when people are conflicted about what to do if they've gotten into Leadville, we offer those people a deferral because Leadville is an amazing experience. And if they have the opportunity to go, they should go. So circling back to the point, you know, Cape Epic has their own path that they have to walk. I think you could make a case for the UCI expecting if they're a, a UCI race to expect them to follow their rule book, which says when someone's served their suspension, they're eligible to race. We may be faced with that fairly soon as a newly sanctioned USA cycling event. We didn't do it as a press play. We didn't do it to garner attention. Um, we didn't do it because it was, you know, conveniently politically um, endorsed by the masses. We did it because it's what we could do and to send a message that there are consequences. Um, there's really another side of that, that that needs to be considered. I think one of the phenomena about doping and, and people getting popped is that it brings these people out of the woodwork, and a ton of them who are assholes in every other way, shape, and form, but they've never popped a pill. And at that point, those people get up on their soapbox and start looking down their nose pretty vocally. Um, I know that that Lance and that a lot of other people have faced choices that none of us have ever had to face. There's an amazing amount of empathy from our end. Um, and it's the mile in the moccasins thing. Um, I don't know what I would do uh, given where I blessed with those talents and faced with that choice. Fortunately, I'm not blessed with those talents. Um, and you know, there's also a little bit of a kindness. You know, I talk about those people who, who like to pretty vocally get up on their soapbox and, and we live in a, in a soundbite world where uh, it's kind of proven over the past, well, since last November that people will, given the opportunity, say whatever's on their mind. Um, completely absent of tact. So when we take Lance, for example, if Lance lined up here, I don't have anything against the decisions that Lance has made. I don't agree with them, but I don't know that I wouldn't have made them, made them myself. But I know that there are people who won't treat him well when, when he comes. And that's intensely uncomfortable. And so I think keeping them away serves a dual purpose. It sends what little message we can you know, a world tour rider isn't going to make his decision to dope or not to dope based on the prank epic. We, I don't think that. No one thinks that. Uh, but it maybe adds to the stack of things where, where the negative connotation quotient is raised so far that it does influence a decision. But it's only a small subset of those factors. So someone like Zabriskie, I like Dave Zabriskie. Right. Everything that he's done um, really, really speaks to contrition. Uh, and unfortunately, he's not able to come. Um, probably always going to be that way. Uh, but I also know that there are people in our field, you know, that the don't be a dick rule notwithstanding, who maybe wouldn't be on their best behavior. And that's unfair to him. Yeah. He's he's paid his price. You know, we're. We're, we're sort of creating a sanction that is, is above and beyond and, and a little bit informal. I, I'll tell you the truth, Mark. I mean, we have other people that are on our blacklist or shit list who aren't allowed to come just based on the quality of their character. Uh, <laughs> who've, who've never doped in their lives, as far as I know. But right. uh, we really believe that events like these are intended to be shared experiences. 
um, that your integrity shouldn't be sacrificed for a handful of seconds. It's a long, it's a long race. Guess what? The fastest guy and the fastest girl are going to win in, in every category and not by a couple seconds, but by minutes and hours and tens of minutes. So we're not the conscience of, of cycling. We've got a track record of, of mistakes that, that deserve and, and beg for atonement. Um, personally and professionally, it's just you do what you can and try to be a decent human being to people, including people who probably are deserving of forgiveness or at least understanding. Well, and you guys are doing it very well. Um, I think that's, you know, the honesty and integrity that everyone talks about about your events speaks volumes. I mean, it's probably the biggest part of your increasing reputation as as being a big part of it being a quality event. What, since you brought it up, <laughs> um, this year, um, when you announced it, a little bit of a controversy, you brought the hubbub, um, the conversation kind of started tracking and trending on the interwebs and the forums and amongst racers as you elected to utilize uh, USA Cycling for registration, event insurance, presumably, um, things like that. Can you speak a little bit about how you it brought you to that point? And to clear the air um, that, of some of the rumors and innuendo that's out there about the hows and the whys, um, I'm sure you're completely aware of all the conversations that were being held. Um, but I'm just curious um, if you could just talk a little bit about why you got to that point. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit tuned out from the conversations. Yeah. Uh, I know that people were, some of them were angry, felt that we moved the goalposts a little bit. And, and our take when people have beefs like that is to listen and to try to understand. And they're not totally wrong. We did move the goalposts a little bit. Um, but USA Cycling for a long time did not do right by mountain biking. Mountain biking is the gateway to cycling. It is the funnel. There, there's no nine-year-olds jumping on a road bike and riding around for 60 miles going, man, that was awesome. I mean, my nine-year-old is jumping ramps in the street on his mountain bike. And as a, as a, a governing body who was tasked with creating Olympic champions, they kind of focused on the road and the track and the funnel was ignored. We went to great lengths when I worked for Chris and Hoog at Yeti to try to open those doors and, and be a part of the solution, not part of the problem. And so we invited Steve Johnson um, to come mountain biking with us. And we, and we took him out on a dual slalom course and we, we shuttled runs at Keystone to try and de-demonize ourselves. Um, and in, in the 10 years since that happened, um, I would say he and, and, and the executive level of USA Cycling did a very poor job of managing the growth uh, of the care and feeding of mountain biking. And I was the, the first, I mean, the whole, you know, forbidden race debacle, that was just, it was awful. And they kept doubling down and making it worse. It's like they were tone deaf to what mountain bikers needed or, or even needed to hear or just what shouldn't be said. And I was at the front of the line, you know, lobbing pot shots saying, Hey, get it together. What are you, what are you doing? Um, the, the time to make peace with you has passed, but things change. And Steve Johnson uh, was shown the door or retired or whatever happened. doesn't matter. And Derek Bouchard Hall, took his place 
and uh, a dear friend, Joan Hanscom, um, took over events. And if anyone knows of Joan and her body of work in the cycling industry and the quality of her character, um, she deserves, you know, a level of gratitude from cycling for, for how much she's contributed to cycling on the cyclocross side, on the road side, on the mountain side. And so we sat down with them and, and started to talk. You know, it, it occurred to me that the, the more that I sort of kvetched about USA Cycling, while they weren't doing any of the things that I was dissatisfied with, kind of started to say more about me than it did about them. So um, I sat down with Derek and Joan, and, and we sanctioned a few of our smaller events with them just as sort of a test balloons. And my experience with them has been pretty amazing. Uh, top to bottom, dedicated, uh, understanding, uh, able to, to flex and bend and, and accommodate. Um, there are a few bumps in the road. They've had some officials that have overstepped their bounds. Um, but those are almost unilaterally observations about individuals, not the organization itself. So we're sanctioning the Epic with USA Cycling. Uh, because I think that cycling is stronger when we all work together, when we can overcome some of our differences. I think Joan and Derek and everyone else there have done a really good job of saying, yeah, we have our own atonement. Um, we're not going to fix it in a day, but we're listening. Listening is powerful. So, uh, as far as what the innuendos are, and I hesitate to ask, um, <laughs> We're certainly not getting rich um, sanctioning with USA Cycling, um, but we're also getting a level of service and insurance that eliminates a lot of headaches for us. And that, that's it's completely understandable. And I knew that, that you know this. I'm sure this wasn't a decision you guys took lightly. Um, you know, and I think everybody everybody that has worked, you know, has been around the USA Cycling, you know, in and out um, over the past, you know, fifteen twenty years or ten or fifteen years or however long. You know, has seen there, there, there have been changes made, whether they directly affect racers yet at this point at maybe the local level, perhaps not. But, um, I think there's an intent there, um, for that to happen, but time will tell, I think. Um, let, let me, let's go back to, uh, the Breck Epic. So the Breck Epic, you guys have the reputation of thinking of everything. Um, start and finish locations being, you know, easily manageable for the racers, um, massages for racers, all the amenities that you would want to utilize that are available if they would ask for them. Um, what are some of the things you guys have on tap this year for returning racers and maybe for people that are coming, um, for the first time? And what is the most often asked for item that your racers are grateful for that you never thought would be important? <laughs> Wow, that's a great question. Um, good information up front. When you don't have the information, let people know and explain why. Like people want to know, they want a Jeep, an accurate GPS file of each stage right now so that they can plug it in. And the truth is that we're not going to get our permit from the Forest Service until the day before the race. So we don't know exactly what's approved. There are some options out there that we've asked them to consider. So we tell people. Well, this is a great example. The course is 95% the same as it was last year. Here's some of the differences. Um, expect to be plus or minus 5% in your mileage. And wh once you tell people, hey, it's inaccurate to this degree, they're surprisingly understanding, um, as long as you explain it. And that's you know, a statement about life uh, and communication. And you know, I'm, I'm a 
ongoing student of communication, um, being, you know, married. <laughs> so, um, in, ter- in terms of, we had a simple rule when we started the Firecracker 50 back in Breck, which I think just celebrated its 17th year, 18th year, maybe. Um, you bring your bike. We're going to worry about everything else. And that race is pretty cool in that you can bring your bike and you don't need to worry about energy, food or hydration or anything. There's an aid station every seven miles. And that sort of theme has carried through. Think about things for people. It's like when I was a waiter in college and I worked for some taskmasters who just demanded that you were better every day. And it comes down to never let anyone ask you to refill their water. Just make sure it's filled all the time. It's your job. So that's our, our job as promoters. Um, to give clear expectations, put the right things in the right places at the right time, let people know when and where they need to be, and allow for the fact that some unplanned things can happen. And when it's your fault, say that and explain what you're going to do to fix it or say you're sorry or do both. Um, in, in terms of what really kind of wows people, the aid bag system um, we started doing it in our first year, uh, thinking, man, instead of t- toting however many individual backpacks or hydration packs out to an aid station, why not give people a device to do that? So we have aid bags. Um, each racer gets three, because sometimes there are three aid stations per day. Their number goes on it. They're color-coded. People decorate them a thousand different ways to make theirs easily identifiable. And they can put, they have to drop their aid bags every morning. Um, at event HQ and inside them, they can put whatever they can fit in there, whether it's a tire or an igloo cooler or I don't know, the kitchen sink, it's basically a flat rate box and they get three of them. So if they want to stage a jacket, um, at the bottom of a descent or the top of a climb, they can do that. Um, so that has evolved over the years. We've had some great feedback from aid station captains. It's gone from, you know, 200 lime green bags with individual numbers to a color code system where bib one through 50 gets red, bib 51 through 100 gets blue. Um, and now I think we're up to like 10 different colors. It makes them easier to sort. What I found out over the past couple of years was that we've had the benefit of having the same aid station people, Josh Keel, Tracy Bresniak, Mike Kane, and they've started organizing their volunteers so that they stage callers just like a, a timing company would. Um, down the trail and when they see bib number 203 coming they yell 203 and someone else back by where the bags are all lined up in sequential color-coded order will yank bag 203 and start yelling at the rider what do you need what do you need and they'll hand out goo packets and roctane and, and bottle feeds there's just there's a level of surgical precision going on at the aid station that blows people away it's incredibly well supported and it, it doesn't require the racers to do anything other than load their own bags with anything they think they might need. And, and on top of what you guys provide, um, there are people that have been doing it for several years. Um, I know you guys, you have folks from the mountain bike community that go up to some isolated pass, um, whether it's Jonathan Davis handing out Skittles on the top of some, um, godforsaken trail in the middle of nowhere or, you know, someone setting up a bacon station somewhere. Um, that's it, in addition to, uh, what you guys provide. I mean, it's not meant to something for someone to be subsisted on, but it actually adds the color to the event um, that you guys have. I was watching, um, something on the discovery channel 
with with my nine year old, and he's sort of snuggled up against me, and, and they're talking about um, how you can drop something in the water in the ocean, and every little floating particle is actually looking for a place to rest. And once it does, other particles form on top of it, and and pretty soon, like you, you've they they would drop a shark cage in to see what would happen if they could create these little ecosystems of fish. And what they found out was that's exactly what happens. Um, so they drop an, an aluminum cage into the water, and a week later, it's covered with crustaceans and kelp. And then there's fish feeding on those things. There's bigger fish feeding on those fish. Those things that you just described, the Skittle station and the bacon station and, you know, Mike Zobi, you know, standing in a tuxedo t-shirt in the middle of nowhere playing the banjo in the middle of the woods. Um, those things have happened organically and I really have to give, give credit where credit is due. The pro cycling challenge, magnificent at, at on the ground activation and cultivating a fan base and excitement. Um, I was, you know, jokingly bagging on. <laughs> people gushingly giving them sacks and sacks of money um, but it's kind of deserved too they did a great job with that stuff um and so we focused on operations and this year one of our refocuses was to do a better job of, of convincing the community that this was their event and creating spectator plans you know just labeled like ski runs so green and, and blue and black and letting them know where to go be a trail pixie, uh, where to go take a cowbell and see the best riders in the world. Uh, and I think we're getting there. Um, we've been working heads down on getting numbers on eight bags. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, and now our, our focus is a little more external to try and make the event a little friendlier to spectators. Mountain bike spectating is hard. You gotta, you gotta want it. Especially um, something is, um, that has as much uh, remote stuff that you guys have. This isn't something where it's a, uh, you know, multiple loops or you know, in a, in a in a short little bike park. I mean, you're talking, you're talking single loop stages. Let's talk about the 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 stages itself. I mean, the the course uh, total over six days, somewhere around two hundred twenty five, two hundred thirty miles. That's ballpark, almost thirty thousand feet of climbing. You know, depending on where that course ends up with almost all of it done in and above 8,000 feet. Any, it's all above 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just knowing where Beaver Creek lies. Uh, and so what, what stages are you looking forward to today? Where do you think the fireworks are going to go? Um, you've, you've got such a huge field showing up. Of course, everybody's fresh on the first day, which sometimes negates stuff and sometimes actually makes it worse. Um, but I'm just curious You've seen this race evolve. You've seen the top guys show up for these races. The course hasn't changed that much. I'm just curious where you think you're looking at some some big explosive action. Well, on the mountain bike side, the climbers are always going to have an advantage. I think with the descents that we have here, which aren't overtly technical, but they're long and they're fast. Um, riders, men and women who know how to get downhill can really mitigate uh, a climber's advantage. So we talked about things being divided into thirds earlier. Uh, I think success in this race, um, you have to have equal parts of the following things in your strategy. You need to know that it is partly a strategy contest and it is partly a recovery contest. And that last third is, um, who's got the biggest gonads, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? And, uh, so there's some pretty violent selections out there. Um, 
it's uh you know the courses are 35 to 50 50 miles a day but it's trail you know there's some double track in there but not it's it's mountain biking um there's some longer races that have really an excessively high road component we don't you're on your mountain bike so while 35 to 50 might not seem like a lot it's a lot um those are big rides every day so we're going to see um the roman candles will go off in stage one and you know there are always people who who um kind of like a little dog with a boner they have to uh, <laughs> sorry um they have to prove their point every single day and that's not a winning strategy um, Pennsylvania Creek presented by orange seal sealant, um, is hard on bikes. It's bony. And it really is, uh, I was thinking about this today. It's, there's that expression about what do you do when you go to prison and, you know, this is made popular by Anthony Scaramucci. You kill the first guy you see. And that's <laughs> sort of, that's sort of what Pennsylvania Creek does, except it does it to lightweight wheels. Um, so, and there's people there who just, they're so excited to be there that they burn a bunch of matches. Um, whereas you'll see sort of the older bulls um, sort of sit back a little bit. Don't let the course eat their bike or themselves. When we get into day two, Colorado Trail is a big climb. Um, I would classify it as a middle ring climb when we used to have middle rings. Right. Um, it's long. It's really long. And you can drop into a cadence and start ticking them over and, and put some aggressive moves on there that if someone's not really ready for, I mean, you're, you're close to 12,000 feet at the top of that climb. Um, you're going to put a dent in some other people. The, the next day, day three, uh, circumnavigation of Mount Gio, you go over the continental divide twice and you see the entire spectrum of humanity, um, from, you know, through hikers, on the Continental Divide Trail to um, trailer park dwellers rolling around with their kids on a 4 by 4 and a cigarette and a Budweiser uh, <laughs> at the top of Georgia Pass. Um, really, you know, from an anthropological standpoint, socio-anthropological, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, but those are two really big climbs. And again, you're dropping into the backside. You know, I know last year that Todd Wells was like, desperately waiting for the, the descent to be finished so he could stop being afraid. <laughs> he was chasing <laughs> Russell Finsterwald so fast. And it was one of the, the best comments I've ever heard about the race. Um, day four is Keystone. It's our grinder stage. Um, day five is Wheeler, which has teeth. You know, um, Dave Weens had a great quote about Angel Fire uh, years ago. Um, he said, you got to climb your way all the way up and then you got to climb your way all the way back down. <laughs> and, <laughs> And Wheeler's like that. Wheeler is rugged. Um, and then, uh, and then the last stage, stage six, gold dust is, is literally like taking a can of whipped cream and spraying the whole thing in your mouth. It's, <laughs> it is ridiculously fun. Um, it's broken into climb, descent, climb, descent, and it's 30 miles and you're done. Um, and we've had some roadies that have won that stage in the past because the final climb is, um, it's all gravel road. It's Boreas Pass Road. And then it is a fairly incredibly swoopy and fun single track finish. Um and and you see those guys looking over their shoulder all the way to the finish arch, um, <laughs> waiting for the mountain bikers to catch up. So every stage has its personality. Um it's very, very different 
from BC bike race. Uh, uh, it's very different from Transylvania. Um, those races, uh, different, different terrain in each. This is very, very true to Colorado. It's, it's very unedited, I guess is a good way to put it. I think Transylvania is the same way. I think the nature of, of BC is that, um, different kind of soil. Um, there are more, definitely more structures there. Right. Um, and again, we get back to better, worse, no, different. No, they're different. different. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you guys, you guys have, um, an amazing Colorado stage race. I mean, and it is, there is no doubt that you could look at every single one of those stages, take pictures of it and, and look at it or ride it and be like, I'm in Colorado. It's the same way that goes for Transylvania Epic. You know, there's a lot of races like that. You know, Transylvania Epic is pure. That's East Coast rocks, Pennsylvania, Central. You know, that's the, that's the trail that the locals ride all the time. And that's exactly what Pennsylvania riding is like. Just like what you guys have over your six stages, it's exactly what Colorado has. That's exactly what you guys have. So. Yeah, and there, there are different flavors of ice cream for a reason. And Mike Boone uh, in Pennsylvania is a friend, and Dean and Trey are friends. And I like what they do. I, I respect it. I know how hard it is. And we all talk, we, we, we get along with each other. We, mm-hmm. we go out of our way not to conflict. And we're competitors for sure. You know, as Dre pointed out years ago, it's like every entry you get is one we don't get. And that can be the case and we can still be friends. And so will I say, you know, they're like our children. Dre loves his race. Mike loves his. I love mine. And, you know, they're like kids. You always think that your child is, is beautiful. And, and my kid may be uglier than a shit fence. <laughs> There's a, a, a corner of me who still thinks he's better looking than your kid. <laughs> but, but that's what makes us all better. You know, Shimano's better because of SRAM. SRAM is better because of Shimano. And we drive each other to be better. And the consumer benefits from that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the, um, infamous stage seven. Um, who's your pick to win that this year? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I have, I have ghosted stage seven. Uh, <laughs> just like been there, shown up, did my white man's overbite for <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, and then, man, I would say that the Pennsylvania contingent, uh, which, Dylan. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say that my favorite is probably Rich Dylan to win it, but Don Powers may challenge only if he brings four loco, because I'm not sure if that's available in Colorado. (laughs) There there are lots of Canadians coming, um, and you don't want to count them out. Um, We're moving the venue this year. I don't know how we ended up at the Gold Pan. I'd never been there in 20 years of living in Breck. Um, But it it was a good fit. but I think this year we're going to have Nick Gould um, bring his DJ set up. We're going to move to the other end of town, which is a little closer to the venue. And um, we are – he's going to DJ. I'm not sure whether he's going to roll out some Michael Jackson, some some Tribe Called Quest, some you know um, electronic dance music. I hope he plays it all. Yeah. But we're going to rent the place out and have more of a private party. Stage, stage seven is this the way to shut it down? <laughs> Let's put you on the spot a little bit. Talked about being a fan of bike racing. So the elite men, in no particular order, who do you think um, are the ones to watch out for? Bishop has won this race several times, and he is 
delightfully weird and idiosyncratic about equipment setup. If there's right. if there's an ex- extra second to find on course, Jeremiah's found it. Right, and on top of that, he's probably one of the only guys that the rest of the field doesn't doesn't race all the time. Now that he's racing and spending most of his time in Europe, I mean, he's he's kind of an unknown only because well, I don't we don't know how fast he's going, you know. Lord. But but you've got to figure he's going very fast, right? And then you have uh, got a bunch of international guys who I don't know much about. Um, we've had some people come over from France and Germany in years past and just roll away with it. Um, Christian Hinek, uh, Alba Licata have raced with us. Um, man, the guy from Costa Rica one year was just amazing. I can't remember his name, um, but he was head and shoulders above. So when you look at the men's side, um, you have to put, you know, Wells' previous winner, also a phenomenally good sport, when we put a huge Breck Epic sticker on his winning Leadville plate and then put another one, <laughs> another three or four on his, on his Leadville Orcart award. Um, and then he, he uh, countered by riding drop bars on the last stage, which was sort of the big story of, of Leadville that year. Um, so you have Wells, you have Bishop, uh, Howard Gratz, it's going real fast. Jeff Kabush. Um, man, there are some fast guys. It really depends. There's an element of luck. Right. And I'm, I can't put my money on, on any of them. There's probably four guys that I'm missing. I'm trying yeah. to see if I have a rider list up here. I do. Conveniently not sorted by category. Which <laughs> <laughs> Makes this awful. Yeah. Um, but you can definitely say that this is wide open. I mean, on top of that, you've got um, you're at not just a little bit of altitude, you're at big altitude. So the ability to recover, the ability to race, the ability to climb, the ability, I mean, there are so many unknowns, after, at least in those first three days. So you see who's really running well. Uh, Barry Wicks is coming. Yeah. S- Steven Ettinger. The list is. is- really kind of sick. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm getting farther away from your question. No, no, no. no. I was just, I was just curious who you were thinking on the men's side. What about the women's side? Um, well, Katarina Nash is real fast. Um, this long distance is a bit of a departure for both her and Katie. Um, Aaron Huck, I would personally like to see do well because uh, journalist Devin O'Neill's registered as a solo woman. That's not going to work out. <laughs> um, Karen Jarko, who works for us, she's yeah. having a monster season. Um, and she's built for this race. She's had some bad luck in doing it in the past. Um, Evelyn Dong, uh, who just has a, a massive, massive motor. She's fast. Um, you know, Karen Jarko won against Katie here in Eagle at state championships. She has the ability to do it. Um, she's a phenomenal descender um, and, and no slouch going uphill either. Um, I think Karen's my dark horse. And I think you're going to be looking at uh, probably Nash, Compton. Those, man. They're just crazy fast. They're talented at a level that, that you know, most people can't comprehend. If, if Evelyn has the legs, um, she could do really, really well. 
Thank you very much for coming on the last aid station. It's been a pleasure getting you to talk about the race. And we're talking, we're just, uh, we're less than two weeks out, coming up on 10 days out. And I know you, you've taken time away from all the planning. I mean, I, I'm, I grabbed you in the middle of probably what is probably the stre- most stressful two weeks of uh, <laughs> the racing, uh, at least the planning of the race. So um, thank you very much for coming on for the talk about the Breck Epic coming up August 13th through 18th. But it's been a, it's been a pleasure to find out how this has kind of evolved and you had some great insight into how you've done it um, on your end. Thank you very much for having me. And, and I'll use this farewell to apologize to uh, Leadville, the USA Pro Cycling Challenge, <laughs> Colorado Tourism Office, um, anyone who's offended by profanity. Yeah. Um, and I'm a deeply flawed human being. <laughs> <laughs> Again, thank you very much, Mike. Have a good day. Mark, thank you. See ya. I had a blast, absolute blast, talking with Mike McCormick, uh, race director of the Breck Epic, an event that someday, I promise, I will get out to Colorado to suffer and enjoy through. I'd really like to thank him again for coming on the Last Aid Station podcast. He is literally a week or so away from the start of his event, and he set aside some time, about an hour or so, when I'm sure he probably has all kinds of rape prep and details to continue to work through. Um, it was just very, very cool of him. I'm looking forward to see where Mike and his group take this race and other events in the future. His ideas, um, his leadership will continue to shape off-road racing, particularly off-road stage racing, no doubt for the better. Thank you again for joining me with Mike McCormick of the Breck Epic and the Green Speed Project. If you have an idea for a guest, be that a promoter, like Mike, a racer, or other person shaping our sport, drop me an email at mark at mountainbikeradio.com or visit our Facebook page for The Last Aid Station. Thank you again for joining me. This is Mark, and I hope to see you at a race near you soon. Take care. (laughs) 